This is episode 74 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 74 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the Communications Specialist at the Center. In this episode, we chat with Sophia Carazza, an alumna of the DCEC's Soren Fellows Program, the valedictorian of the class of 2019, a Marshall Scholar, current PhD candidate in cognition and brain sciences at the University of Cambridge, and co-host of the podcast The Pilgrim Soul. Let's sit down together for this wide-ranging and marvelous conversation. Well, Sophia Kratza, thank you so much for coming to be with us. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? And I know you're a townie, but where are you from? Uh, where did you grow up? What's your family like? Kind of those sorts of things. Thank you. I, yep, I'm a townie. I grew up just down the street from Notre Dame here on Washington Street. My father's a professor in the law school and my mother teaches uh, religion up at St. Pius and Yeah, absolutely loved growing up in South Bend. But I also had the privilege of spending some time in Italy growing up um, whenever my dad would get sabbatical. And so by the time I got to the end of college, I was very much convinced that I was going to go anywhere but Notre Dame. Wanted a place that was more cosmopolitan. But yeah, became convinced through uh, several experiences that I had in high school that only Notre Dame was the place that really corresponded to my desire for formation in in faith and in scholarship and, yeah, that I had a profound need to be a member of a community here. And so I chose to go to Notre Dame and one of the best decisions I have ever made in my life. Yeah, it very much formed me into the woman who I am today and set me on the trajectory of following after Christ that I am on uh, more or less successfully. (laughs) And I'm now living in England, uh, where I'm about to finish. I have one year left on a PhD in neuroscience, um, after which I'll be moving back to the States, uh, to Boston specifically. So I'm grateful to have had this time away, especially during the pandemic, a time of more intense uh, scholarship and solitude and stillness um, in England. But I very much consider myself an American at heart, so I'm glad to be coming home. Where did you live on campus? Um, I was in Kavanaugh Hall, and I stayed there all four years, which was a big, a tremendous blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've spoken in other places about having a profound encounter of faith mm-hmm. and kind of coming back to your faith, mm-hmm. which you said, you know, was always there. And, uh, but yet, tell us a little bit about that. How, how did that come to be? Thank you. It's a, it's a mystery, a, a total grace freely given because I was definitely going in the opposite direction uh, when it happened. I, at the start of high school, for various reasons, entered a phase of rebellion against everything that my parents stood for and that I had uh, grown up with, really seeking an answer to the desires of my heart for for meaning and for justice and for to be loved in in places that weren't going to satisfy it and in the party culture and um, yeah, seeking really my own image of what my life could be, my own perfection, following myself and 
where this led to where this led me to quite honestly was was to death it really led to a deadening of my life and it culminated really my junior year of high school i was living abroad with a host family in milan and without the support of my family um, and all of the institutions and communities that I belong to here in South Bend, that life that I was living, like there were no longer any defenses that could guard me against the consequences of my decisions. And it, I entered a, a period of profound darkness. And yet in that darkness discovered a presence with me, specifically in the form of some friends with whom I went to high school, that that weren't scandalized by the darkness that was in me or weren't numb to my needs, but were able to be a presence of joy and a promise of of something that could actually fulfill them um, instead of all of the other places that I was looking. And yeah, so I started to to pray with them and to go to mass with them because the only reason that I could see that they were living a life that was more fulfilling than my own was their relationship with Christ. And so for me, this this took on a human relevance and attraction. And I still didn't know. I mean, I still don't really know how to pray or how to follow Christ. But for me, that was the, the moment where um, I decided that if if my life was going to be worth living, which at the time it almost felt like it wasn't, it had to be in relationship with this man, with Christ. And so this happened to be, uh, I was going to a, a school run by the movement of communion and liberation. And so this became the the companionship, the form of the friendship through which um, Christ reached me. And so by following the movement of CL, which is a lay movement uh, in the Catholic Church, this has formed and informed um, my discipleship in the years since. But it really just has been a love story, you know, like we were just chatting before we turned on the microphones about how, in a sense, the, with the encounter with Christ, you receive everything in that first moment of conversion, but it takes your whole life to understand what's happened to you. And so I very much feel like I'm beginning all over again each day. What you describe, though, also is very much a Pope Francis style culture of encounter and mm. accompaniment. Mm-hmm. It's the witness of your friend's just to be with you. Yeah. That that takes a real depth of of trust in your friends and of your friends in you too. Yes, and in God that they weren't trying to fix me, but were really just able to look at me with the gaze of of the father on the prodigal son. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so as an undergraduate here at Notre Dame, you studied neuroscience and behavior as well as theology, philosophy, politics, and economics. <laughs> One wonders what you did in your free time, right? Uh, Now, that's a broad range of interests, to say the least. So what drew you to combine all of those together in your studies? How are they interconnected in in your understanding? Mm, Or mm. are they? They are. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, I have always been intensely curious and I've always really wanted to understand, in particular, the human person. Um, some of my earliest memories are wondering about the people around me, what they were thinking, why they were doing what they were doing. And so when I discovered in high school that the brain played a role in this, I was hooked. Um, this, for me, promised to unlock the mystery of my own inner life and the lives of the people around me. And so I really, it was it was born of this wonder um, at the human person and this desire to, uh, to better understand how God created us so as to better live the life that 
that, that was promised to me, the fullness of what it means to be human. And yet when I got to campus and started studying, I entered actually as an applied math and neuroscience double major, um, really searching for um, answers that I could trust with certainty. And, and this is where I thought it was going to come from. But faced with the limitations and the fact that actually it's applied math and neuroscience that can most deceive us about what it means to be human. When faced with that limitation, I hungered for uh, a framework, a context, um, a, a principle of unity um, to my studies that could help me make sense of the answers that I was and wasn't discovering in neuroscience. And so fortunately here at Notre Dame, we have incredible faculty members across so many disciplines who really live this kind of integration in their own work. Um, and so I took as many courses as possible trying to. And the, the first theology course that I took was with Father Kevin Grove. And in contrast to my experience of, of applied math the year before was just profoundly struck by the human relevance of what we were doing, that what I was studying in his class and writing about was also the mystery that I was pondering in prayer in the truth of my relationships with other people and renewed and intensified my desire to understand the beauty of the brain. And so there was almost like a, yeah, a unity of life that was given to me even beyond unity of scholarship um, through the study of theology that, that I fell in love with. And so decided to change my second major to that. And, um, and the rest is history, really just seeking always, sometimes at the expense of true knowledge of, of each discipline, this search for integrity can can be imprudent sometimes, but seeking always the the place of each discipline in the broader whole um, with theology as the queen of the sciences always. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a John Henry Newman-esque approach to the idea of the university. That is a flattering comparison. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned this idea that applied math and neuroscience can actually be profoundly misleading yes. as to understanding the human person. Yes. Um, and that it was your studies in humanities that actually drove you back. Yeah. So how can neuroscience and, and math be misleading? Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I, I guess kind of unpack that a bit. Mm-hmm. This is a challenging dynamic for me that I'm still sorting out. So I'm grateful that you asked it. And it's been a, a theme in my graduate studies of really grappling with um, the limitations of the fields of neuroscience as a discipline, both in principle and then also in practice. It's founded upon assumptions, kind of like economics, it's founded upon assumptions of the human person that I really disagree with. Uh, there is a latent materialism and physicalism and understanding that the human mind is, uh, a, is a machine, is, falls under the domain of the mechanical. Mm -hmm. Our whole field of cognitive neuroscience is founded upon that view of the human person. And whether or not cognitive neuroscientists themselves are aware of it, it shapes our work profoundly, the way that we ask questions, the way that we seek answers to them. That combined with, in the broader culture, this disproportionate fascination with the human brain as potentially answering um, our needs and our, our deepest questions um, fuels a kind of hubris among researchers that really blinds us to the limitations of our own work and turns our, the work of our own hands as the measure of reality. That, I would say, is, you know, the kerosene that we're pouring on this fire is scientific misconduct. And the way that, I mean, you can blame the incentives of publication and grants in academia. Uh, you can blame original sin, which is what I blame. But um, there really is pervasive p-hacking and all sorts of forms of misrepresentation of scientific results in the service of ideology. So I... <laughs> 
I have been challenged by the limitations of the field and what it means to be a researcher with academic and intellectual integrity, because I don't believe that it's a useless endeavor. And yet I do believe that what neuroscience can tell us about the human person is far more limited in scope and significance than neuroscientists and the general public believe. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. No, yeah. no, what it does is it, it makes more clear what the challenges are. Yeah, yeah. And then it is an invitation. Yes. Right? Yeah. When you left to go off to do your Marshall Scholarship and, and graduated as the valedictorian of the class of 2019, you mentioned that you plan to explore the science of child development mm-hmm. with particular focus on trauma and resilience mm-hmm. and then apply that science, what you learn through the science, to public policy. So the mm-hmm. practical application mm-hmm. of what do we do with this information. Yes. So now you've been there for three years, you know, uh, and continuing. You're deep in your research. Is that still what drives you? Is that still what you're working towards? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question, one that I ask myself frequently. It is the form of my work. It's still I'm doing research on I use computational modeling to try to understand the effects of abuse and poverty on structural brain development. Um, and I found, yeah, some um, some interesting findings on potential pathways through which early adversity might change the principles of neurodevelopment in in children's lives. And in the form of it, I I still strive to translate this into resources for uh, educators and practitioners and people in the legal field. So as to, again, strive for integration of what we know about children's development and to really act on, on the science. However, I have to say, this is not why I do my research anymore. It, it has been transformed into truly an offering of, of obedience to God, um, because I'm certain that he called me to follow this path and that it was an invitation that was, uh, you know, attractive, proposed for my fulfillment. And yet, as I've said yes and followed, it's also been clear to me that this is not having the impact on children's lives or on the field of neuroscience or on my own life that I had thought would come from it. And so it really is an open question for me now of this is a sacrifice that the Lord is asking of me for now to continue in in, in research and in academia without seeing the human relevance in terms of really the effect in, in children's lives who are struggling with the consequences of of violence and poverty, like I don't see, I don't see the needle moving in terms of child flourishing as a result of my own work and the work of my colleagues, and so you know, insofar as as that's true, I'm asking the Lord for a way that I can more directly work to be a protagonist of justice for these children. But until He shows me how that is, I will continue offering my small, you know, my small progress in this small subfield of neuroscience as. Um, the only way that I can act on this desire to participate and collaborate in, because he's the one who's, who's saved the world already, you know, and right. so it's up to him to determine how I'm going to participate in that plan of salvation. But stay tuned, because I don't know if it'll be research forever. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very Augustinian expression, right? What you've described is, I'm doing this, but it's still not fulfilling, Yeah. yet that impels you to continue on this path because this is what you feel called to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Vocare, to be called. 
Yes, exactly. And this is, I mean, graduate school has been such a blessing because it is the most intense, sustained and hidden form of the cross that I've ever been called to. Um, Even more so than, you know, struggles with mental illness when I was a teenager. And it has been an invitation truly to learn as if for the first time what it means that Christ really is enough for my heart. That in in the daily grind of writing my my scripts and my code, of preparing a presentation and coming up against in my heart the resistance that comes from my insatiable desire for more, for a total fulfillment, and yet being confronted with the banality of what my work is. The only way you can do that is either, I mean, I guess there are two ways. One is to escape and to complain about your work and to view it as the enemy, the obstacle to your fulfillment, which I have certainly fallen into that temptation sometimes. I think it's common in graduate school. But the other is the path of freedom, of recognizing like, you, oh Lord, you are present and you are enough for me. And only by, there's this quote from St. Bruno that I love of like, really, only if you go to the depths of the work that's in front of you and what's what you've been given, you will discover the whole of the universe. You will discover freedom. And it's not by looking over your shoulder at another place where you think Christ is present that you'll discover this. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the Lord could have chosen any number of ways to teach me this lesson. But for me, it's come through the PhD and through the dissatisfaction and lack of fulfillment that I feel in my research. And so I'm grateful that he hasn't he hasn't left me in, you know, he's not satisfied with my mediocrity, right? But has given me a, a, a small and hidden form of participation in the cross that, that can bring me to look at him. Because if, if I don't, I suffocate. Well, let's take a step back for a moment. And uh, you were connected to the De Nicola Center, Mm -hmm. which was at the time the Center for Ethics and Culture, as one of our earlier Soren Fellows. The the program has grown considerably since you've graduated, but uh, not because you graduated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What sort of opportunities did being connected to the Center provide for you during your time here? Oh, my goodness. So much. I think with so much gratitude about uh, my participation in the program and just the broader culture of... Um, of the center here. The fall conference, of course, was a staple of my year. My friends and I would joke that it was our version of the career fair because (laughs) we would go and just discover so many scholars and disciplines that were doing something so beautiful that we wanted to give our whole lives to it. So yeah, so and I had the privilege of presenting at the fall conference my senior year. But yeah, I would I think especially of my relationships with faculty members over dinner, which Soren fellows are um, privileged to be able to do that with incredible faculty members or in class, just like being given the most amazing witnesses to follow in my life of scholarship and my life of faith. I think with gratitude also about many talks that I attended and uh, discussions with visiting scholars um, that really formed my judgment on on the world around me and my capacity to approach all of life with a single criterion. Um, I also was uh, blessed to receive grants to go uh, work on a bioethics paper and uh, attend a graduate theology course in Jerusalem. And these incredible transformative experiences that I never would have had the financial means or the opportunity to do on my own. And so just the the unconditional investment in me as a, a whole human being is something that, yeah, I've benefited tremendously from, I'm sure, even in ways that I, that I don't know, that I don't remember. <laughs> well, you're actually uh, returning the investment. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> now, you mentioned before, uh, you kind of hinted at your, your relationship with communion and liberation, the mm-hmm. movement, the mm-hmm. international Catholic movement. Now, I have to confess, I've been to the meeting in Rimini, 
Nice. Uh, I this past year I attended the New York Encounter, but I don't think I really get what CL is. Yeah, and you've kind of you hinted there at your time in Milan in in this mm-hmm. being very formative for you mm-hmm. in a school, an actual school, mm-hmm. and this is of course part of the vocabulary too. The the school of community, community, yes, yes. yes. our weekly um, moment of catechesis. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about what CL is, what it means for you, mm-hmm. and uh, try to explain it for for those of us who just don't get it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it's hard to explain in words because it's a life. It's a shared friendship. And so I guess I'd start by saying if there's any listener who's interested in CL and doesn't get it, um, as as many of us who live the life of CL still don't get it, um, just come and come and see. See if there's a group near you um, who you can get to know. I guess the the easiest way to try to articulate what the life of CL is is to briefly talk about its origins, which is with Monsignor Luigi Giussani, who was an Italian priest and theologian um, in the 20th century in Milan, who didn't start the movement because he thought he saw some problem he wanted to fix through his own initiative, but really because he had a passion for young people around him and how troubled and moved he was to see that for them, the life of faith was something that was purely ritual, cultural, abstract, separated from their own experiences, the experiences of their own needs, of the daily events of their lives, and how profoundly he saw prophetically that this kind of faith would not last. It wouldn't stand the challenges of 20th century intellectual movements, and it wouldn't stand the challenges in any believer's heart of the events of life. And and so what did he do? But though he was, you know, a uh, 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 promising, rising theologian, you know, of the kind of von Balthasar, asked permission to go teach in a public high school where they still had religion classes um, at that time. And so he went and began teaching these young people the the basic principles of the faith, starting from um, from the I, what he called the I, the, the human heart, the irreducible and universal needs that every single person has. And which are answered only by the presence of Christ, God in the flesh who came to tell us that he was our fulfillment, the fulfillment of our desire for truth and for beauty and for justice, and that we can experience events that correspond to these desires of our heart through the companionship of believers on earth, through the church, which is the continuation of the presence of Christ in the flesh. And so, yeah, so it was precisely because he loved these students and shared his life with them and their encounter with Christ took place through the face of Father Giussani that they wanted to share all of life with him, holidays and dinners and mass and, and everything. And so it was through their following of Father Giussani and as they grew older, their own children, and that a life was born, a people who share a friendship. I mean, it's Christianity, but according to a particular flavor, this is what a charism is, like a, a particular thing that makes you capable of the whole. And so it's now in something like, uh, I don't know, 100 and 130 countries. And yeah, they're, no matter what form of life you're in, high schoolers and middle schoolers or in the university setting or priests and religious, there are ways that the charism of Trusani is being lived. And the emphasis is precisely on this, of discovering the event of Christ in our daily lives as someone, um, something that corresponds to uh, what we truly need um, and discovering that it's precisely in walking together in a community companionship um, of the church that we're able to adhere to this man who um, who has called us to be his own and that all of life flourishes as a result. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, it's my synopsis of the charism. <laughs> yeah. 
perhaps once you're in dialogue and in community, mm-hmm. it it's a little more understandable. It is. Yeah, it becomes comprehensible through the comparison with your own experience. Um, even one sentence from Drusani can be dense at times, but we only take a little section at a time each week. And by reading it each day and thinking about what I've lived and asking the Holy Spirit to, to help me understand, this is how I see like, oh, he talks about freedom in a way that's different from the culture. But the way that Drusani talks about freedom as an experience of something that corresponds to the desires of my heart, like that's consistent with what I see in my life when I feel most free. Um, And so, yeah, it's over time together um, and really through comparison with our own experience that I think we're able to grow a little bit in our grasp of of how Jusani saw reality, which is how Christ saw reality. But yeah, a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. So somehow you continue to have zero free time, and yet you have <laughs> multiple projects. You you have written for the Patheos blog. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned you're working on a book. Yeah. And then you have a podcast mm-hmm. uh, with a fellow Soren fellow alumna, Adriana, and and then your sister, Juliana. Yes. Uh, also an indie alumna. So the podcast, The Pilgrim's Soul, is now in its third season. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. How is a a typical episode structured? What inspired you to first start recording together? Uh, Who's your audience? These sorts of things. Yeah, the podcast is is such a gift, really a source of light, strength, and help on my on my path. It began, the idea was first conceived during the pandemic. At the start of the pandemic, we in England had a very strict lockdown, as I know other places in the States and certainly throughout the world did. I was struck by how there seemed to be a temptation in my own heart, certainly, and a temptation that I saw pervasive throughout the culture to say that life was on hold, that we just had to put our heads down and get through this lockdown and then life could resume again. When, no, like our desire for fulfillment is no less. In fact, it's even greater in those radically reduced circumstances of not being able to leave our house or see anyone other than our roommates. My desire for fulfillment and and for the presence of Christ is just as great when I can't go to Mass. And so I wanted to have a chance to first in my own life have a more particular and intense form of companionship that would help me verify that Christ is present and he is enough for me. But then also to share this with other people, um, to not just remain wrapped up in uh, self-absorption or whatever it was that the pandemic tempted me to, but to to continue to live my identity as a missionary, to share the good news that what our heart longs for truly does exist today, um, no matter what suffering we're facing, no matter what limitations of our circumstances are imposed on us. Um, and so I proposed to Adriana and Juliana to start this podcast with me, and they both agreed. And it has been, yeah, uh, two and a half years now, I guess, since we started. And yeah, I've been moved in particular by how the Holy Spirit has used it to reach all kinds of of people from all different backgrounds. Our audience is international and interdenominational and across different ages. And for each episode, we just take a topic that has been on our hearts in our life of faith recently um, and share it with our listeners and, and talk about it in light of what we've learned from Father Giussani and the Charism of CL, but also our own daily experiences in confrontation with the 
dominant mentality of the culture. And yeah, it's been amazing to see in my own life the changes that have come from this, um, this continual work, uh, a continued almost education, it feels like, um, and also the friendships that have been born from the podcast. To make this concrete, I guess I just share with your listeners, uh, one of our most recent episodes was on division. This was a topic that, as I'm sure many of your listeners um, as well, have been thinking about intensely since the start of the war in Ukraine. And yet I've been troubled by, even within Christian circles, a certain form of talking about war and division versus the peace that that Christ came to bring that didn't satisfy me. Because on the one hand, it could turn into a, a numbness or a callous disregard for the suffering of the people in Ukraine because Christ's peace isn't of this world. Um, and I definitely see this in myself, just a, a selfishness and a, and a lack of concern for their suffering. Or on the other hand, this idea that through our own efforts, um, we can establish Christ's reign on earth and and put an end to to this division when I'm certainly aware of my own helplessness in front of crises of, of this scale, but actually in front of, you know, crises in my own heart as well. Like I'm, I'm powerless in a certain sense. And it reminded me of back in 2017, the Center for Ethics and Culture did a conference that they titled using Solzhenitsyn's The, the Line of Good and Evil Runs Through Every Human Heart right, or something right. like that. Yep. And that has remained with me since. And yeah, and, and in grappling with this, I have been profoundly helped in the months since the start of the war by certain figures in CL talking about about the role of the Christian, each Christian throughout the world right now in this time of war and division, of uh, as one of mercy and forgiveness. Exactly where we are in our circumstances, our task is to receive the mercy of God and to recognize before us that that uh, no matter who is in front of us and what divisions seem to exist, that that God has already, he is already um, the principle of unity between us and this person, particularly if, if this is someone who's baptized. And yeah, so I, in, on this episode, just really wanted to talk with my my co-host about how, how can this be? How can it be that there's an essential unity between me and other people when I fail to live up to this and when I see war in the, in cultural wars and political wars and in the war in Ukraine, what does it mean to search for and to thirst for and to experience the peace of Christ? And yeah, in, in the responses that we've gotten from some of our listeners, I see that this is like a hunger that we all have, that we're not satisfied by just relentlessly consuming news obsessively about um, what's going on in Ukraine or conversely, like being like an ostrich and just sticking our head in the sand. So it's something that helps me really live life more intensely and with a greater awareness of Christ. And so I would invite all of your listeners to um, to join us on this this pilgrim journey. The podcast is called The Pilgrim Soul. And how do people actually find your podcast? So it's on every podcasting platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, if you search The Pilgrim Soul. We also have a website, pilgrimsoulpodcast.com, where you can find all the information in our archives and things. How do you personally prepare for an episode? Mm, a lot of prayer. Um, I also read the writings of Giussani that he has to say on any given topic. 
Um, but really just letting the Holy Spirit in my experiences of friendship and conversation and daily life draw my attention to ways that the topic we've chosen for the upcoming episode um, is present, what my questions are, what my needs are. Um, I mean, it helps that they have been two people from whom I've learned so much in my path of discipleship. And yeah, it really makes the distance shrink. I mean, we were in California and Boise, Idaho and England when we began. So certainly a long distance, but when I, I, because I have the the very clear judgment that their faces are the way that the mystery enters into my life, it's become very natural to share everything with them and to really rely on them. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for this experience of communion. Yeah. yeah. Well, now you mentioned that when you finish your PhD, you will return to the United States yes, and to yes. Boston. Mm-hmm. What is in line for you in Boston? Yeah, thank you for asking. I um, am grateful to have received an offer of a research fellowship at Harvard Medical School. Um, so I'll be joining a uh, neurology lab and conducting research on the relationship between the, our interpersonal nature, so our social nature, our relationships, and our brain health. Um, and so I will certainly be be looking for opportunities to also, given that I'll be in a, a hospital setting, to shadow psychotherapists and clinicians and hopefully seek a greater integration to circle back to where we started um, with the practical work for human flourishing for people who have experienced adversity and trauma. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, Sophia Carazza, thank you so much for coming to be with us. And thank you for this marvelous conversation. I, I now feel like I need to go pick up a book of Jasani's. Oh, thank uh. you for having me. Well, <laughs> if you do, I recommend Generating Traces in the History of the World. I think it's the most synthetic and accessible presentation of his thought. And it's also just beautiful. So if you want to, that's where I'd start. See, now, just like an episode of The Pilgrim Soul, we got a book recommendation. A book recommendation, yes. Fantastic. Yes. Well, thank you so much, and best of luck as you wrap up your studies and begin the next chapter. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you to Sophia Carazza. In the show notes, you'll find links to her valedictory address at the 2019 Notre Dame Commencement Ceremony to her pieces for the Church Life Journal, and to the Pilgrim Soul podcast, which she co-hosts. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always have the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Thank you.